I've treated hundreds of patients and trained thousands of healthcare professionals over my 15-year career. And one thing I've learned through that experience is that most people are really confused about supplements, or they lack a clear strategy or plan for how to use supplements to improve their health. That's why I created Adapt Naturals. It's a supplement line designed to add back in what the modern world has squeezed out and help you feel and perform your best. Our ancestors' diets were rich in the essential vitamins and minerals and phytonutrients we need for optimal function. But today, thanks to declining soil quality, a growing toxic burden, and other challenges in the modern world, most of us are not getting enough of these critical nutrients. I formulated Adapt Naturals using the principles of evolutionary biology and modern research to fill the nutrient gaps that we face today and replicate the nutrient intakes found in an optimal ancestral diet. Our flagship offering is called the Core Plus Bundle, a daily stack of five products that gives you everything you need each day, from essential vitamins and minerals like B12, folate, magnesium, and vitamin D, to phytonutrients like bioflavonoids, carotenoids, and beta-glucans. You can also order the products in the bundle separately if that works better for your needs. The Adapt Naturals products are made from the highest quality, food-based, or bioidentical ingredients. From cellular and immune health, to brain and nervous system support, to blood sugar and heart health, we've got you covered. Your supplement cupboard is about to get a lot smaller. We also created an app called Core Reset to help you get your nutrition, sleep, movement, and stress management dialed in. Because no matter how good our supplements are, and they are really good, you can't supplement yourself out of a bad diet and lifestyle. The best part is that you get this app at no additional cost when you order the Core Plus bundle. Head over to adaptnaturals.com, that's A-D-A-P-T naturals.com, to learn more and start feeling and performing your best. Hey everybody, Chris Crosser here. Welcome to another episode of Revolution Health Radio. This week, I'm going to answer a question that was sent in, which is, what help can you give if someone has early-stage Parkinson's? And the number of people who are diagnosed with Parkinson's is on the rise, with researchers estimating that over a million Americans have this devastating condition as of 2020. So we're in 2022 now. That number is almost certainly a little bit higher. Unfortunately, the conventional treatments for Parkinson's are limited to surgery and medications that come with a lot of nasty side effects. The good news is that a growing body of research suggests that there are many modifiable risk factors that are associated with Parkinson's, which gives us some clues as to the actions that we can take to prevent the onset of the disease. We also know that there are steps that you can take to slow the progression or even in some cases reverse the condition in its earlier stages. And I've been working with patients with Parkinson's in my clinic for many years and have had uh, some significant successes when approaching this from a functional medicine perspective. So in this podcast, I'm going to tell you about some of the underlying causes that contribute to Parkinson's from the latest research, and then we're going to talk about some steps you can take to lower the risk of getting Parkinson's in the first place or potentially slow the progression of the disease if you already have it. But let's start off with the definition of Parkinson's disease and a basic understanding of the mechanisms and signs and symptoms. Parkinson's disease is a neurodegenerative condition characterized by a number of factors. First, a gradual loss of neurons in the brain that produce dopamine. 
Second, mitochondrial dysfunction. Third, neuroinflammation or inflammation of the neurons in the brain. Fourth, oxidative stress. And fifth, an accumulation of misfolded or malformed dysfunctional proteins in the neurons. And one particular protein called alpha-synuclein plays a significant role in how Parkinson's is diagnosed. Together, these factors damage the central nervous system and they impair motor function, causing the hallmark symptoms of Parkinson's disease, which are stiff muscles, difficulty standing, walking, and with other bodily movements, involuntary movements or tics, rigidity, uh, slow shuffling gait, difficulty speaking, dementia, reduced or lost sense of smell, change in facial expression, and constipation. Many scientists and doctors have dreamed of developing a cure for Parkinson's disease, but that, the reality is that Parkinson's is caused by multiple factors and is therefore unlikely to respond to a single therapy. Rather than focusing our efforts on finding a silver bullet drug to cure Parkinson's, I think we can make more progress and better improve patients' quality of life by addressing the many underlying causes of the disease. That approach may not only prevent Parkinson's disease or at least reduce its occurrence, it could also potentially reverse some of the signs and symptoms in people that are already struggling with it. Now, if this sounds familiar, you're not wrong. This is a similar thing with Alzheimer's disease. I've, I've had Dr. Dale Bredesen on the show a couple of times to talk about a functional medicine approach to Alzheimer's and the problem with the typical conventional idea that we're going to find a single drug or even a group of drugs that can address Alzheimer's. That's, I think, a pipe dream because Alzheimer's is caused by many different underlying factors, and those factors will vary from person to person. Uh, and, and this is really one of the core insights of functional medicine and the differences between functional medicine and conventional medicine is that functional medicine is a systems-based approach. We understand that the whole is more than the sum of the parts, we understand that the etiology or, or causes of even the same disease can be different from person to person, and therefore the treatments need to be different from person to person. And the same is true uh, for Parkinson's disease. So with that in mind, let's talk about eight of the underlying triggers or causes of Parkinson's that have been identified in the scientific literature so far, and then we'll move on to some of the steps that you can take to prevent uh, or slow the progression, or in some cases, although this I have to say that this is rare in my experience, uh, reversing the condition in its earlier stages. So the first underlying cause is gut dysfunction. You've probably heard me talk about the gut-brain axis before. That's a two-way communication system between the enteric nervous system, or the second brain of the gut, and then our central nervous system. Chronic constipation has long been recognized as an early sign of Parkinson's, and it precedes the onset of the motor symptoms of Parkinson's disease by many years, suggesting that changes in the gut have a causal relationship with Parkinson's. Alpha-synuclein proteins are deposited in gastrointestinal nerves up to 20 years before the onset of Parkinson's disease symptoms. So this really suggests that the gut may be ground zero in the development of Parkinson's disease. And I've seen that in all of my patients with Parkinson's, and I really think there's a lot to this. Alpha-synuclein spreads from the gut to the brain. 
epidemiological research supports this theory as severing the nerve that connects the brain and the colon in animal studies reduces the risk of Parkinson's disease. But what causes that accumulation of abnormal alpha synuclein in the gut in the first place? Some researchers think it might be triggered by changes to the gut microbiota. So normally proteins in our cells form through folding into specific functional shapes, but sometimes misfolding occurs, and the result is a protein that doesn't work as it should or that clumps together and accumulates, which is what happens with alpha-synuclein as it relates to Parkinson's disease. And we know from research that gut dysbiosis triggers inflammation-induced misfolding of alpha-synuclein in gastrointestinal nerves, which subsequently link up with other nerves along the gut-brain axis. Those abnormal alpha-synuclein proteins travel along the gut-brain axis and may eventually lead to Parkinson's. Parkinson's disease patients also demonstrate distinct patterns of gut dysfunction that may eventually contribute to this condition, including elevated levels of inflammatory bacteria, lower levels of anti-inflammatory bacteria, SIBO, very common in Parkinson's patients and, and may be both a cause and a result of Parkinson's, H. pylori infection, and increased intestinal permeability or leaky gut. Dysbiosis results in an elevated production of lipopolysaccharide or LPS, which is an inflammatory byproduct of, of bacteria. And when leaky gut is also involved, LPS can cross the gut barrier, enter the bloodstream, and then travel through the blood up to the brain, cross the blood-brain barrier where it causes uh, inflammation in the brain and leads to a loss of dopamine-producing neurons. So that's a lot of potential mechanisms and pretty strong evidence that uh, dysfunction and changes in the gut, and particularly the gut microbiota, may be driving Parkinson's disease. And this is, I think, the number one area of focus for anyone who has Parkinson's in their family or who's already starting to experience some of the telltale signs and symptoms of Parkinson's, the primary focus should be on healing the gut um, and correcting dysbiosis and SIBO and any other uh, gastrointestinal issues that are present because I think this is probably the primary driver of the disease. So the second factor that can trigger or exacerbate Parkinson's is gluten. Gluten ataxia, which is a loss of control of body movements, has long been recognized as a neurological symptom of gluten sensitivity. And gluten sensitivity, as well as celiac disease, has been shown to have many other neurological manifestations, including some of the same motor symptoms seen in Parkinson's. Several case studies have found that a gluten-free diet can help to alleviate those symptoms, and genetic research suggests that people with celiac disease often test positive for PARC7, which is a protein associated with Parkinson's disease. So I'm not suggesting that everyone with Parkinson's has gluten sensitivity and that if they just remove gluten from their diet, they won't have Parkinson's anymore. That's ridiculous. But I am suggesting that you know the data I just shared indicate a possible relationship between gluten sensitivity and Parkinson's disease. So especially if someone tests positive for PARC7, that protein associated with Parkinson's and they have gluten sensitivity, uh, I think it absolutely makes sense to remove gluten from the diet. Parkinson's, as you know, is a, is a serious disease with potentially, you know, very serious outcome. So removing gluten from the diet is a very simple step you can take and something that could have a 
positive results. So there's, there's no harm in trying that and possibly a lot of benefit. Uh, number three is autoimmunity. So in the last few years, a number of researchers have begun to speculate that Parkinson's might be an autoimmune disease. So in one study published in Nature, the researchers found that fragments of alpha-synuclein cause the body's immune system to mistakenly recognize dopamine-producing neurons as foreign tissues and to start attacking them. So what's happening here is, is the body... You know, just like with any other autoimmune condition where the body's attacking itself, the body is attacking the neurons that pr produce dopamine, and that's leading to, to the signs and symptoms of Parkinson's. And interestingly, Parkinson's disease and autoimmune conditions share a common genetic basis. And together, I think these findings suggest that addressing Parkinson's as if it's an autoimmune condition is an interesting and potentially fruitful approach that is relatively novel. It hasn't, you know, there's not a lot of research on this yet and, and certainly not being done in the conventional med medical field. But in my practice, when we have patients with early stage Parkinson's, we will sometimes experiment with some of the same autoimmune treatment protocols that we would do with any other autoimmune condition. So we might put them on AIP, uh, we'll try to boost their glutathione levels and do other things to support T-regulatory function. We might try low-dose naltrexone, which I'll come back to uh, later in the show as a treatment for autoimmunity. Um, and I think this is certainly worth exploring further. Number four is blood sugar imbalances. When the bloodstream contains a high concentration of sugar, like, like with hyperglycemia and insulin resistance, the protein circulating in the body can become damaged, and alpha-synuclein is no exception. And once that's damaged, it can cause even more harm to the neurons in the brain. Insulin resistance is significantly underdiagnosed in non-diabetics with Parkinson's disease. So in other words, it's not uncommon for people with Parkinson's to have high normal or pre-diabetic blood sugar. And that's a, a cause for concern because once the disease develops, insulin resistance has been shown to worsen Parkinson's by further damaging the alpha-synuclein proteins. The good news is that taking steps like a low-carb diet, more physical activity, all the things we talk about to balance blood sugar levels has been shown to protect the brain's neurons. So improving insulin sensitivity and normalizing blood sugar are really critical uh, steps to take for reducing the risk of Parkinson's and also alleviating some of the symptoms if, if you already have it. Number five is iron overload. This has been one of my interests uh, clinically for many years. In fact, one of the first presentations I gave at one of the first ancestral health symposiums, more than I think more than 10 years ago, was on iron overload. Um, and this became an interest of mine because I, early on in my clinical practice, I was discovering many patients who had iron overload, you know, far more than what conventional approach to this condition would suggest. And I recognized that it was a, a problem that was much more common than typically acknowledged. And, and it was something that could cause a lot of issues. So iron overload can occur in people with a genetic predisposition to storing excess iron or in those who've been supplementing uh, with high doses of iron long-term or in some you know much more limited cases, people who are going overboard on uh, iron-rich foods like shellfish or organ meats like liver. I've, I've seen a couple of patients in my practice for over the years who were eating liver every day, 
because they they got the message that it's a very nutrient dense food, which is certainly true, and they actually overdid it and uh, developed excess iron levels. Now, for most people, if we eat too much iron, we can just eliminate it in in the feces. Um, but for some people who have certain genetic polymorphisms, the body's not able to recognize that excess iron and eliminate it. And these are among the most common genetic polymorphisms in people of Northern European descent. In fact, they affect one in 200 people. So in a country of 300 plus million people, a lot of whom are, are of Northern European descent, uh, that means iron overload is going to be a very common condition. Unfortunately, it's rarely caught in the conventional medical world because most doctors are not doing complete iron panels with you know, iron, iron saturation, UIBC, TIBC, ferritin, soluble transferrin receptor, etc. But I do do a full iron panel on every patient that I see, and so I've caught many people with this condition. Bringing it back to Parkinson's, uh, in high concentration, iron causes oxidative stress in all body tissues, including the brain, and in fact, mostly in the brain. The brain is most likely to be affected. People with Parkinson's disease have very high brain iron levels, suggesting that iron-induced oxidative stress plays a role in the disease process. And conversely, once people re receive treatment, which is usually therapeutic phlebotomy, or removal of excess iron from their blood, to reduce their iron levels, they often will see clinical improvements in their condition. By the way, as we go through this, um, I have a, an article on Parkinson's on my website, which has all of the resources, um, studies and links and information that I'm covering here. So we'll put a, a link to that in the show notes um, so you can check that out uh, and get all the background info that you want. Okay, cause number six is circadian disruption. The circadian rhythm is the roughly 24-hour biological cycle in humans that regulates a huge array of physiological and behavioral functions. And when that circadian rhythm is disrupted by factors like too much exposure to, to blue light at night uh, or abnormal sleep-wake cycles, shift work, etc., that increases the risk of Parkinson's by altering the expression of genes and proteins that regulate dopamine in the brain. Uh, so it shouldn't be a surprise to see in, in the scientific literature that chronic insomnia is one of the major risk factors for Parkinson's and abnormal sleep-wake cycles can exacerbate the symptoms of the disease. Cause number seven is stress. Um, there's really no modern chronic disease that is not uh, associated with stress, and Parkinson's is, is no exception. Chronic stress elevates cortisol, and that promotes a pro-inflammatory state that ultimately kills dopamine-producing neurons in the brain. Cortisol can also interfere with neuronal plasticity, which is the brain's ability to adapt and learn from new circumstances. In animal studies, a high frequency of stressful life events increases the risk of Parkinson's disease. And I will say that in almost all of my Parkinson's patients, their initial onset of, of symptoms was triggered by a major life event, you know, like a, a loss of a job or a major life transition. Again, that doesn't mean that stress is the only cause or trigger. There's always a, a collection of causes and triggers, but, but stress is almost always one of them. And in people with Parkinson's already, stress has been shown to exaggerate Parkinson's-related motor dysfunction and non-motor symptoms. So this is a major factor uh, that needs to be addressed both for prevention and treatment. 
And then cause number eight, this one is uh, really significant, so I'm gonna spend a little bit more time on it, and it's actually well-recognized even in the conventional uh, medical establishment, and that is the, the role of environmental toxins. So oxidative stress, which is caused by exposure to toxins, is a well-known cause of alpha-synuclein accumulation in the brain, and there have been several different types of toxins that have been implicated in the pathogenesis of Parkinson's disease. You can you know, see these links in my article, the studies, they're in PubMed, they're published. And like I said, even you know, fairly conventional sources and practitioners are aware of this connection. Although from what I've seen, very little is done to test for it and treat it because that's not really something that most conventional doctors are trained to do. So finding a functional medicine specialist that knows how to test for toxins and treat toxic exposure is really important for people with this condition. So one category is pesticides and herbicides. Uh, for example, rotenone. rotenone is an insecticide commonly used in home gardens for pest control, and it has been shown to inhibit the activity of protein complexes that get rid of unneeded or damaged proteins like alpha-synuclein. So if you get exposed to this uh, pesticide or insecticide rather that can decrease the activity of that protein that clears out damaged alpha-synuclein and then you get an accumulation of damaged alpha-synuclein which is a hallmark of parkinson's disease paraquat and maneb which are herbicide it's an herbicide and fungicide respectively also cross into the brain from the bloodstream and are toxic to mitochondria and damaged neurons and studies have shown that People with a lot of exposure to these pesticides, like pesticide applicators or agricultural workers, and people who live in rural areas have a, a significantly increased risk of Parkinson's. Um, one of my patients with Parkinson's actually lived in a rural area of Colorado that was surrounded by farms and ranches and golf courses and where there was a lot of uh, herbicide, pesticide, insecticide application happening. And when we tested her, for toxic exposure, she was literally off the charts and she'd lived there all of her life and the Parkinson's ran in her family. There was a high rate of Parkinson's incidents in her local community. And, you know, it was so clear that that was a contributing factor in her case. And when we did a detox program, she improved significantly. It didn't cure her of the disease, but it made a huge difference. So this is something you really need to consider. Another potential contributing factor is toxic mold. Um, mycotoxins, which are the metabolites produced by toxic molds, can contribute to the development of Parkinson's by depleting dopamine and inducing an inflammatory response in the brain. Air pollution has been linked to Parkinson's, uh, including ambient particulate matter, nitrogen oxides, carbon monoxide, and ozone. Chronic exposure to air pollution has been shown to contribute to Parkinson's by triggering oxidative stress and promoting the misfolding of alpha-synuclein. This, unfortunately, is not something that people necessarily have a lot of control over. If you have Parkinson's and you're, able to, to, and you're living in an environment that has high air pollution and you're able to move to somewhere that has cleaner air, I think that's absolutely a worthwhile step to take because we just wanna reduce as many of these potential exposures as we can. Let's talk amino acids for a moment. On my recent episode, Why Amino Acids Are the Building Blocks of Life, I discuss why we need amino acids at all stages of life and how key on aminos can help you live a long, active, healthy life. 
To truly understand just how vital amino acids are for health, think about your body and what it's made of. You've probably heard before that it's made up of mostly water. What you probably haven't heard is that everything else in your body is 50% amino acids. These building blocks of life are essential for health and fitness. This is why Keon Aminos is my fundamental supplement for fitness. I drink them every day for energy, muscle, and recovery. Keon Aminos is backed by over 20 years of clinical research, has the highest quality ingredients, no fillers or junk, undergoes rigorous quality testing, and tastes amazing with all natural flavors. So if you want to naturally boost energy, build lean muscle, and enhance athletic recovery, you need to get Keon Aminos. You can now save 20% on monthly deliveries and 10% on one-time purchases. Just go to getkion.com slash Cresser. That's G-E-T-K-I-O-N dot com slash Cresser to get my fundamental supplement for fitness, Kion Aminos. Vitamin C is a critical nutrient for immune function and antioxidant protection. Yet most people don't get enough in their diet, and most vitamin C supplements contain synthetic forms, GMO, sugar, or allergens like soy or corn. This is why I recommend whole food forms of vitamin C, which contain the full spectrum of vitamin C activity without GMOs or other junk. And my favorite whole food vitamin C product is Essential C from Paleo Valley. It's made with three of the most potent vitamin C-rich superfoods on the planet, one of which is 120 times more potent than an orange. Nothing synthetic, no weird questionable ingredients, just food. Right now, they're offering my community an exclusive 15% off discount. Just go to paleovalley.com slash chris and use the code CRESSER15 to get 15% off. Okay, so with that in mind, let's talk about 11 different ways to, actually, I think more like 13 different ways to lower your risk of Parkinson's and, and even, again, reduce the signs and symptoms if you already have it. So number one is to eat a nutrient-dense whole foods diet. So this is almost always the answer to every, well, it pretty much is the answer to every health condition. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. You know, um, most people listening to the show are aware of this. And yeah, I don't want to belabor the point. So nutrient-dense whole foods diet, check the article on my website for a specific suggestion. I've, you know, written and spoken about this ad nauseum. So we're just going to move on to the next one which is making sure you get enough vitamin D and omega-3s. So vitamin D deficiency is associated with an increased risk of Parkinson's, whereas vitamin D supplementation and sun exposure are associated with the reduced risk. We know from recent statistics that 94% of Americans, and I would assume probably similar rates in many other countries in the world, are not getting enough vitamin D. So this is a extremely low-hanging fruit and something that's very easy to correct is absolute no-brainer to do to reduce your exposure to Parkinson's or your, your risk of it. And if you already have Parkinson's, um, that it could actually, as I mentioned, Im- improve the symptomology. Omega-3 fats like EPA and DHA are critical for normal brain development and function across lifespan. And low levels of EPA and DHA increase the risk of neurodegeneration, whereas getting enough EPA and DHA has been shown to reduce the death of neurons in the brain, reduce brain inflammation, boost antioxidant enzymes, and relieve motor symptoms in people with Parkinson's. So I recommend consuming two to three servings of seafood a week, so a total of you know 16 ounces of cold water fatty fish to get the, that EPA and DHA. If you're not able to do that, then you can supplement um, with an equivalent amount of EPA and DHA. Number three is to give up gluten 
talked about that earlier, so I won't dwell on it. Number four is to consider a ketogenic diet. So there are some really good studies now suggesting that a ketogenic or very low-carb diet can improve brain function in several different ways. Um, there's some different thoughts about this. One is that in patients with both Alzheimer's and dementia and Parkinson's, the brain is not processing glucose effectively. And so the idea of a ketogenic diet is to replace glucose as a fuel source with ketones. And the brain actually prefers ketones as a fuel source to glucose, especially in cases where it's not processing glucose correctly. So some of the more exciting findings related to ketogenic diet actually deal with its impact on neurological diseases like Parkinson's. In animal models, the ketogenic diet reduces mitochondrial damage and improves motor function. And in humans, the diet improves both motor and non-motor symptoms of Parkinson's disease. Um, so in addition to ketones providing an alternative fuel source to glucose in the brain, ketone metabolism also decreases oxidative stress and reduces inflammation of the brain, which are two of the underlying causes of Parkinson's. So I don't necessarily recommend that someone who has Parkinson's in their family and is worried about getting it follows a ketogenic diet you know, continuously because there can be some downsides of that. Uh, but you might consider doing a ketogenic diet phase like for a month, four times a year, three to four times a year. Um, and there's some evidence that that might be beneficial. If you already have Parkinson's, then it, it may be that, that a more consistent ketogenic approach is beneficial. Uh, but that I would highly recommend working with a functional medicine practitioner who has experience in this area because you know, cycling on and off or incorporating intermittent fasting can also enhance the, the benefit of that and, and reduce some of the downsides. Number five is attending to gut health. So lots of ways to do this. I have a free ebook on gut health on my website, so check that out if you haven't already. Probiotics and prebiotics have both been shown to benefit Parkinson's patients. Probiotics can help to relieve constipation, improve insulin sensitivity, improve antioxidant status in people with Parkinson's, which, you know, those are some of the hallmark signs and symptoms. Seed is my favorite probiotic, as you know. Uh, so if you go to cresser.co slash seed, S-E-E-D, you can learn more about that. And then prebiotics or fermentable fibers that feed beneficial gut bacteria are another useful intervention. Uh, FOS and GOS, which are two types of prebiotic fibers, increase brain-derived neurotropic factor, which is a protein important for protection of the neurons and, and their survival and plasticity. And BDNF, or brain-derived neurotropic factor, is abnormally low in Parkinson's disease patients, so boosting it can have neuroprotective effects. Number six is reducing your exposure to toxins as much as possible. So we talked about how that's a major factor in the pathogenesis of Parkinson's. So this means creating a healthy living environment at work and at home. Uh, one big step you can take is to, is to filter or purify the air in your, in your home or workplace using an air filter like uh, Air Doctor or IQ Air, um, and then making sure you're drinking clean water so there are lots of good water filters. Uh, Berkey's one. There are some good under the sink options as well. So you know, making sure you're you're drinking clean water and breathing clean air is critical. Uh, testing your home and uh, for mold and addressing that if you suspect you have a problem there. 
reducing your exposure to pesticides and herbicides and insecticides, uh, looking out for compounds like bisphenol A or BPA, you know, reducing your use of plastics and plastic containers, you know, just taking steps overall to reduce your exposure to other toxins like toxic home cleaning and personal care products can go a long way. Number seven is to adopt a regular sleep rhythm. Uh, we talked about how the you know disrupted circadian rhythm is a contributing factor to Parkinson's. So um, creating a regular sleep rhythm, going to bed and waking up at you know the same time or close to the same time if possible um, to create that regular sleep-wake cycle, getting to bed earlier for most people is going to work better, although some people do have a chronotype where they naturally fall asleep later and sleep later. But the key, I think, is regularity and then avoiding blue light emitting devices like uh, smartphones and tablets and computers uh, within a couple hours before bed, reducing your exposure to light while you're sleeping. Even small amounts of light have been shown to disrupt the circadian rhythm. Uh, so getting rid of digital alarm clocks, not sleeping with your phone next to your bed, all the stuff we've talked about over the years is, is really important. Number eight is to consider botanicals and supplements. So there are several plant compounds that have been studied for neuro, their neuroprotective effects. Um, lion's mane mushroom has been shown to regenerate neurons in the brain. It's, it's one of the few substances that we know of that can do that. And then there are other mushrooms like reishi and turkey tail and chaga and cordyceps that have significant neuroprotective effects. This is one of the reasons I'm so excited about mushrooms and I, I included a mushroom product in my Adapt Naturals Core Plus bundle. It's called BioVail Myco because mushrooms have incredible brain protective effects and they're, you know, the, the incidence of Alzheimer's and dementia and Parkinson's and other neurodegenerative conditions is just rising at a scary pace. And I think we need to do everything we can pull out all the stops to protect our brain because our brain is the control center for everything that happens in our body. And if our brain uh, goes south, so to speak, then nothing else is going to function properly. So protecting our brain as we age is, the, I think, the single most important thing we can do to extend our health span. And these mushrooms have incredible brain protective effects and, and benefits on cognitive function, motor function, etc. So if you want to learn more about that, go to adaptnaturals.com and check out the Core Plus bundle and uh, in particular BioVail Myco, the mushroom blend. Curcumin has been shown to be neuroprotective. Uh, sulforaphane, which is a phytochemical present in broccoli sprouts, uh, protects against toxin-induced neurotoxicity and has a lot of interesting benefits You know, for Parkinson's. I, broccoli is the product I recommend. It's, it's one of the it's one of the only uh, truly stabilized sulforaphane products on the market. Most sulforaphane products on the market contain sulforaphane precursors and don't actually contain sulforaphane itself, and so they're going to be far less effective. So uh, broccoli is, is the one that I recommend, and you can learn more about that at cresser.co slash broccoli, B-R-O-C-E-L-I-T-E. EGCG, which is a a polyphenol found in green tea has been shown to reduce the risk of Parkinson's disease and may help once it's already started. So you can get that by consuming green tea or by taking uh, a supplement that has uh, EGCG in it. Um, BioVail Multi, which is my essential multivitamin, multimineral, and phytonutrient blend, does have EGCG in it. You know, it's one of the most 
researched compounds for addressing oxidative stress, inflammation, and neurodegenerative conditions. So number nine is getting more exercise. And there's a lot of evidence that suggests that physical activity overall and exercise in particular inhibits the progression of Parkinson's disease by enhancing neuroplasticity and promoting the growth and survival of neurons. And that's also true for dementia and Alzheimer's. Exercise increases BDNF, brain-derived neurotropic factor, which we talked about earlier as being very low in Parkinson's. It's also low in dementia and Alzheimer's. So that's one of the most potent ways that we can simulate BDNF and really, really critical for maintaining bone health. Uh, number 10 is reducing stress. We talked about how chronic stress is a major factor for Parkinson's. There are lots of ways to do this. If you just Google Chris Kresser, stress, you'll see some of my articles that have a lot of practical suggestions for how you can integrate a, you know, stress reduction practices into your daily routine. Number 11 is phototherapy, aka light therapy. So light therapy has been shown to reduce neurodegeneration in Parkinson's disease. In animal models, near-infrared light protects dopamine-producing neurons from cell death and improves motor symptoms by restoring normal cellular energy production and decreasing oxidative stress. And several human trials, although small, have shown that near-infrared light can help speech, cognition, gait, and the kind of freezing episodes uh, or moments where a person is temporarily unable to move. So near-infrared light can be administered either as low-level laser LED therapy. Probably the easiest way to access it is, is a near-infrared sauna. So I have a sauna space at home. It's uh, you know one of my favorite pleiotropic health interventions, which means pleiotropic meaning an intervention that has multiple different benefits. Um, it feels good. It helps with detoxification. It helps by... Uh, decreasing oxidative stress, improving mitochondrial function. So in, in all of these are mechanisms for Parkinson's and it's really kind of a, a, an ideal therapy for, for Parkinson's because of this. It, it addresses actually multiple mechanisms of Parkinson's disease. So Sauna Space offers a great discount for Revolution Health Radio listeners. I've been a huge fan of their saunas uh, for many years. I've used them myself daily and recommend them to patients. I think it's the best near-infrared sauna out there. So if you want to learn more about it and pick one up, go to cresser.co slash sauna space, all one word, S-A-U-N-A-S-P-A-C-E. Okay, so uh, that was number 11. I'm going to add a couple more. One is low-dose naltrexone. So this is a medication you may have heard me talk about in the context of autoimmune disease. It's been shown to benefit patients with Crohn's and several other autoimmune conditions, including fibromyalgia. Uh, it reduces inflammation in the central nervous system, and it balances and, and regulates T-cell function. And of course, Parkinson's involves inflammation in the central nervous system in the brain. There's not a lot of research on LDN and Parkinson's. Actually, I think only one or two small studies, and, and they've shown mixed results. But we've used it empirically in our practice for many years with Parkinson's patients. And it's certainly not a panacea. Some patients don't notice much of a difference at all. But in, in others, it has a really, really significant effect. And so, you know, we always have to remember we don't treat conditions, we treat patients. And the same treatment will affect different patients differently. And so even a study that shows mixed results 
if you're one of the people that experienced a, a big benefit, <laughs> that's kind of irrelevant, right? You know, like if a, if a study has five people with really great benefits and five people who, who didn't experience any benefit and five people who actually got worse, that, that's going to be a null result, like no benefit. But, you know, for the five people who experienced a phenomenal benefit, that's, um, they don't really care about that. So this is why we have to take an individualized approach to um, treating these conditions. So low-dose naltrexone, you'd want to work with a functional medicine clinician or someone who has experience with that medication um, and hopefully using that medication for Parkinson's. There is a book called LDN, which is uh, low-dose naltrexone for Parkinson's disease on Amazon. So if you're interested, you can check that out. Medical cannabis is another emerging treatment for Parkinson's disease. And it's also one where the studies are quite mixed. Um, a lot of the studies were not particularly well designed. Uh, some had only a few participants, but there are uh, some studies indicating significant benefits like improvements in anxiety, pain, sleep dysfunction, weight loss, nausea, motor function. You can actually even see some videos on YouTube. There's a, a one video I'm thinking of of an older man with Parkinson's who uses cannabis for the first time, and you can see his hand shaking pretty violently before he uses cannabis, and then once he once he, you know, very shortly after he administers the cannabis, you can see his hand stop shaking almost entirely, and he he's in tears because he hasn't stopped been able to stop shaking for years. So again, it's similar to LDN. Like for the people that it works for, it can be dramatic and life-changing, but it doesn't work for everybody. And it can actually even have some adverse effects in some cases. Um, Parkinson's is characterized already by impaired cognition, and certainly some forms of cannabis can further impair cognition, uh, like executive function or planning and judgment, and that can be problematic. Some people, it can cause dizziness, blurred vision, mood or behavior change, loss of balance, which is already impaired with Parkinson's. So it's, there's really no one-size-fits-all approach. The other thing to, to, to keep in mind about cannabis, medical cannabis for par, in general, not just for Parkinson's, um, is that we refer to cannabis as if it's just one treatment <laughs> approach, but the reality is cannabis is a, is a phenomenally diverse plant, and the ways that cannabis therapy can be applied are numerous. So, for example... Are we talking about sativa or indica? There are many different strains of cannabis plants, and those different strains have decidedly different impacts. And, and there are some conditions where patients would tend to benefit more from indica, and there are some conditions where patients would tend to benefit more from sativa. And another question is, what is the cannabinoid uh, profile? Which cannabinoids are we targeting? Are we targeting THC, which usually you know produces the alteration of consciousness that's associated with cannabis um, and has some unique effects on physiology. Or are we talking about CBD, which is usually non-psychoactive and has a different range of effects? Or are we talking about new cannabinoids that have been discovered in the past 10 to 20 years and are, we're, we're only starting to understand their effects like THCA or CBN or CBG? There's a lot of potential here in getting more specific about how we're applying medical cannabis therapy. Uh, and then, of course, there's the route of administration. So vaporizing cannabis has a different effect than eating it, which has a different effect than using like a sublingual spray. And when you put all this together, there's uh, uh, an incredible 
range of potential ways to um, to use medical cannabis, and they will have a very different impact uh, to the point where they can t change it from being not effective or even potentially harmful to being incredibly effective. And and I've I have a lot of experience using medical cannabis with patients and um, have seen that firsthand where, you know, a patient will come in and say, oh, I've tried medical cannabis. It doesn't work. I asked, you know, some questions about how they've done it and find that they probably haven't used the correct approach for their particular condition. Then I change the recommendation based on that. And all of a sudden they have a really positive response. So I would highly recommend if you're considering medical cannabis therapy to uh, work with a seasoned practitioner. And there are also some good books out there. One that I recommend for if you're just you know primarily focusing on CBD is called CBD, A Patient's Guide to Medical Cannabis, Healing Without the High. That's by Leonard Lineau. Uh, Leonard is also the founder of Synergy Wellness, which is the uh, cannabis dispensary that I recommended uh, and used in my practice in California to patients. It's a medical cannabis dispensary, not for recreational use. And Leonard is one of the most knowledgeable people on the planet, I think, when it comes to applying cannabis and CBD for a whole range of conditions like cancer, Parkinson's, autoimmune disease, gastrointestinal disorders, etc. So I highly recommend that book if you want to learn more. And then another, a, a good book about cannabis overall, not just CBD, but also THC containing strains and all of a lot of the newer strains um, that, that are being studied and explored now is called Medical Cannabis, a Guide for Patients, Practitioners, and Caregivers. That's by Michael Moskowitz, M-O-S-K-O-W-I-T-Z. Um, and then finally, I'd recommend listening to another one of my podcast episodes called Discovering the Potential of Medical Cannabis with Mikhail Kogan. So that's M-I-K-H-A-I-L-K-O-G-A-N. Um, you can just Google that or we'll put a link to it in the show notes as well. Uh, we talk about uh, Mikhail is one of the most experienced practitioners that I know of with medical cannabis. He's board certified in geriatric medicine, and he has a lot of experience using medical cannabis in the geriatric population for conditions like Parkinson's and other diseases of aging, but he's also just incredibly knowledgeable about the use of uh, medical cannabis, the power of different cannabinoids, and you know tips for beginners, where to get started, and, and some thoughts about the future of medical cannabis. That was a f phenomenal episode. I, I definitely recommend listening to it. Okay, I know that was a lot. I hope it was really helpful, um, and I hope that this gives you hope, um, because there is hope when it comes to Parkinson's, both for people who are at the early stages or, or already are struggling with the disease and for people who have a history of it in their family. Um, there are lots of steps we can take to prevent, slow the progression, and in some cases, if, if it's early enough, possibly reverse the condition. So thanks for listening, and I will talk to you next time. That's the end of this episode of Revolution Health Radio. If you appreciate the show and want to help me create a healthier and happier world, please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. They really do make a difference. If you'd like to ask a question for me to answer on a future episode, you can do that at chriscresser.com slash podcast question. 
You can also leave a suggestion for someone you'd like me to interview there. If you're on social media, you can follow me at twitter.com slash chriscresser or facebook.com slash chriscresserlac. I post a lot of articles and research that I do throughout the week there that never makes it to the blog or podcast, so it's a great way to stay abreast of the latest developments. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next time.